Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, April 14, 2020. Coming up, molecular biologists in Berkeley are helping their city test for COVID-19. Our full automated process is 1,000 plus a day. And medical doctor Ron Rosedale will explain why high levels of a hormone called leptin may lead to more serious disease, including COVID-19. And so they take medications to reduce inflammation. They need to eat also to reduce inflammation. The COVID-19 pandemic has forced most people to wait it out at home. At UC Berkeley in California, one group is working night and day. They're a team that includes molecular biology professors. They've just published a blueprint for how scientists anywhere can help their local community test for the COVID-19 virus. For more, we spoke on Skype with molecular biologist Fyodor Ernov. The challenge is twofold. First, how to be able to test hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of samples in parallel fast for doing such testing on samples from people rather than doing a research experiment in our own lab. Are you testing the antibodies or the virus or both? We're testing the virus. And the reason is this. The medical need here at Cal and in the city of Berkeley is for rapid turnaround testing that would give a robust readout whatever the stage of infection. We know from extensive studies in Asia, in Europe, and in the States that antibodies show up quite late. Can you imagine a setting where we test somebody who is a resident in a nursing home or somebody who is a firefighter in the city of Berkeley fire department or a homeless person who lives in a large encampment of homeless people? And I bring up these three cases because we've actually done all of those things. We've tested in all of those categories of individuals. What I've heard is that what you test is somebody in a medical setting. I mean, they go to a medical center, but then you are doing the testing for that medical center. Not quite. A homeless person is not going to go to a medical center. We have partnered with the city of Berkeley and a healthcare provider that specializes in serving the uninsured, the vulnerable, and the homeless. And they partnered with the city of Berkeley fire department and firefighters go out to the homeless encampments. And that healthcare provider sets up tents in the East Bay, which is a term for where Berkeley is. To finish answering the question you asked me earlier, The reason we're not testing for antibodies, but testing for virus, is we know that people can be antibody negative and can be symptom negative, and yet be carriers for virus and transmitters of it. We test for virus because it is the best known way right now to determine whether somebody is infected or not, and thus a potential danger to others in addition to themselves. You probably have the technical expertise to test both the antibodies and the virus. Right now, you're focusing on what you see as the most critical need right now. Yes. There have been so many shortages of supplies to test for the virus. There's been a lot of discussion in the press about how we don't have enough reagents. We don't have enough of the special swabs because those evidently came from Italy and there's been a short supply of those. In contrast, there's been Paul Romer, the Nobel winning economist, who says, for heaven's sakes, the best researchers in the country can figure out other ways to do this. Is that true for you all? If we had had the luxury of time which we don't. We know that a one to two week delay, for example, in New York and in Northern Italy led to the near apocalyptic situation that tragically both of these realms of the world are currently experiencing. 
yes, our full-scale R&D mindset could have been deployed to overcome the shortages of anything. In the practical world that we live in today, April 2020, there is no time. So when we started working on this exactly four weeks ago, and by the way, we went live with full CLIA HIPAA compliance testing three weeks to the day after we started, we had a choice to make. The choice was, do we adopt reagents, practices, and approaches that will be scalable? We will not be limited by a tube or a swab or a reagent. So here's what we did. We sourced alternative to those Italian ones, tubes and swabs from China. It took a while for them to get out of customs and across the ocean and through customs here. But here we are. At this point, we're not limited for those because four weeks ago, we got ahead of the problem. For reagents, we looked around. We could have built our own cherry-picked components for our private mix. We deliberately chose to partner with a major reagents provider, Thermo Fisher, which is sort of the equivalent of partnering with McDonald's for French fries. They have them. So Thermo Fisher is a research reagents behemoth. I personally reached out to the head of science at Thermo and said, look, we're going to adopt your reagents and we're going to deconstruct them a bit to make them faster, but I need you to promise me that supply is not going to be limiting. He promised it isn't, and it hasn't been, so they kept their word. You have had to do a lot of things that a molecular biologist normally doesn't have to do. That's the understatement of my life. Um, There's a famous quote from Tolkien where Frodo complains that he wishes he didn't have to live in such times, and Gandalf says, well, well, that's not for us to choose. The times just are determined for us. The only thing we can do is decide what we do with the time that is given us. The world doesn't care that I am just a molecular biologist and so is everybody else on my team. The the question is, can we take that unique skill that we have, our training, and do whatever it takes to make that skill resonate in the real world? And that required proverbially learning from the, by drinking from a fire hose, and then having to do things that I certainly did not learn in graduate school or, or a postdoctoral research fellow, nor did any of my colleagues, which is, how to make things happen in the real world from a regulatory, logistic, financial interface with clinical organizations and with the city. I learned a lot, as did my colleagues. We hope to never have to use all of these things we learned again, because but in practical terms, there will be another thing like this. And at that point, we will be quite ready, having, having learned this rapidly, speed, having speed learned this um, the first time around. How many tests are you doing right now a day? Our current throughput is several hundred. Our full automated process is a thousand plus a day. We went live with a semi-automated one and in fact just published the complete recipe on MedArchive because of their urgent need. I mean, we were literally getting reach outs from the city of Berkeley saying we have a vulnerable population and we need it tested now. So rather than spend two to three weeks in the asymptotic pursuit of something that is perfect, we went live and started testing with something that works. It's more labor intensive while building the fully automated process and putting going, going live with it immediately after. What are you finding from the tests that you're doing? How many people are positive that you've been testing? I can't say. Not because I'm secretive, but because now that we are not just academic researchers happily describing our little discovery, there are now rules and regulations both at the federal and state level and the city level that we have to comply with. I can't say. 
I will tell you that an analysis of public disclosures from Bay Area hospitals potentially suggests, although, you know, I'm saying this crossing every finger on my hands, that we may potentially have implemented the shelter in place and social distancing guidelines just in time to avoid being hit as hard as some of the other parts of the world. I think there is light at the end of the tunnel and the light is, is, is a happy one. But ask me again in a month. It, it'll take us a few weeks to know. And you're talking about flattening the curve. There's equal concern right now about killing the economy. Sheltering in place can't be the only thing that we do. We have to figure out a way to sort out who is safe to go back to work, who is especially vulnerable and needs to stay away from this virus, and everything in between. You have described our central mission for the next few months. Once the diagnostic lab is fully automated, I am hopeful that our throughput for symptomatic patients and for the vulnerable and for the first responders will be ample and will leave us capacity to do precisely what you said. Namely, how does one reopen a small business here in Berkeley? How do you allow an organization that provides an essential service to get back to work while giving folks who work there some relative peace of mind that there is not a super spreader among them, like in that tragic story in Seattle where there was a church choir, I think, and they all sang together beautifully. And then, of course, a large fraction of them went down with SARS-CoV-2 because there is a super spreader and they were all singing in a closed environment. We are deeply committed to not just speed testing several thousand, 10,000 people and then being done. We're in this for the long haul. We are here to do whatever it takes to allow our university, our city, our community to spring back to life. And I agree with you, testing more broadly in a variety of ways will be essential for this. And we are fully committed to providing that. Well, thank you for explaining that. You know, we have a national policy, ideally, that is supposed to have gotten everybody tested. It's not working. And so you're taking the other approach, which is to take it at a very local level and say, let's see what we can do to help our community. You're publishing what you're doing online so that other communities, other places that have universities, for instance, can do what you're doing. You very pithily described our conclusion after, believe me, days of, of late into the night discussions. We cannot be the, a tree that falls in a forest without making a sound. But changing national policy as, <clears throat> excuse me, of the past... <clears throat> many examples from, from world news and national news teaches us is just not something that a nonprofit institute at the, the University of California, Berkeley can do. However, we can partner with visionary city officials and university officials here. And, you know, we have a community of several hundred thousand people just in our immediate neighborhood. The manuscript we just published that uh, describes what we did starts with the word blueprint. We wanted to provide a blueprint for how to do this, essentially a recipe. Our intent, as we work towards helping Berkeley open back up again, is to do precisely that, to give other folks a blueprint where they could potentially look at what we did, what the city of Berkeley did, and follow suit. I would love to ask you more, but you have a lot of fires to put out this morning. So good luck with what you're doing. Is there anything that we've missed or are we good? I suppose the one thing I want to share with your audience is we've gone through a lot of darkness as a city, a state, a nation, and a planet. I have been affected to the bottom of my heart by how much human goodness has emerged at how many levels 
in every step of the process. When we put out a call for volunteers to work in our testing facility, 862 people signed up in 24 hours. People from all walks of life, including major corporations, you know, individuals who are handsomely paid, who could be home on Netflix, showed up, wore masks and gloves, and worked long hours. It says something very profound and affecting and comforting, frankly, about the human spirit. This is the first cataclysm of the sort of my life. I wish I hadn't seen it, but now that I do, as I mourn for the tragedy of the world is experiencing, I am sincerely encouraged by what I saw and continue to experience in the people I work with and interact with. We can do this. We, we can do this. We really can. The better angels of who we are has really come out, and I'm witnessing it on a daily basis. Fyodor Urnoff is a molecular biologist with UC Berkeley's Innovative Genomics Institute. We'll link to Berkeley's COVID-19 testing blueprint on our website, howonearthradio.org. I'm Shelley Schlender. Up next, we'll talk with medical doctor Ron Rosedale about ways to eat that might reduce the chance of a COVID-19 cytokine storm. But first, How on Earth volunteer and CU biologist Beth Bennett explains more about cytokine storms. If you've been following the news reports on COVID-19, the disease caused by the new coronavirus, you've been hearing the term cytokine storm. Sounds scary, and indeed it is, as this storm is believed to underlie the most severe symptoms seen in the disease. So just what is a cytokine storm? Basically, it's an overreaction of the immune system. Let's start with a brief primer on what goes on in the immune system that can generate this storm. To start, people love to compare the immune system to a military operation, which makes sense because it is our internal defense system. So if we start with that analogy, think about sending in 10 patrols to take out a small enemy position when one would suffice. There will be a lot more casualties due to so-called friendly fire because there will be a lot more firepower than is needed. So when the first responders of our immune system arrive at an infection site, they assess the damage. Next, they send out signals telling the immune system how many reinforcements to send in. These signals are called cytokines. In the case of COVID-19, if people have a pre-existing condition like high blood pressure, diabetes, kidney disease, or previously damaged lungs, then inflammation levels in the body may already be high, and this pre-existing inflammation can mean that there's already a lot of cytokine messengers floating around. In other words, because of areas that already have pre-existing inflammation, the first responders can get the message that more help is needed than is actually the case. So once the cytokines are present in the system, they stimulate even more inflammation. For short-term emergencies, this is a desirable response. The increased blood flow and recruitment of a variety of immune system cells clears up infections and helps deal with damage. But inflammation that goes on for too long or too much inflammation all at once can do more harm than good. And now you might be thinking, if a cytokine storm causes damage because of inflammation, Will anti-inflammatories help? Researchers are looking at this very question. A recent report from China assessed the efficacy of various anti-inflammatories in treating people seriously ill with COVID-19. One of these you've probably heard a lot about lately. It's called hydroxychloroquine, which is used to treat the autoimmune disease lupus because it has anti-inflammatory properties. A recent study published in the journal Clinical Immunology 
also features another drug, an antibody which blocks the cytokine signal. It shows promise in early tests. Now, the problem with all these potential drug therapies, as many scientists have publicly explained, is that at this time there are no large, well-controlled trials. Another approach is to reduce the overall load of chronic inflammation in the body, which is possible through ordinary methods such as getting enough rest, not smoking, and eating in a healthy way. Things we should all be doing anyways. For How on Earth, the KG News Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth. I'm Shelley Schlender. The Centers for Disease Control reports that people are at a greater risk for COVID-19 hospitalization and often deadly cytokine storms if they have pre-existing health conditions, such as high blood pressure, diabetes, heart disease. Everyone says that healthy eating might reduce these risks. But does healthy eating mean the New York Times distracted baking comfort foods of brownies and Nutella shortcake? Does it mean taking dozens of supplements and cutting out fatty junk foods, as Christina Cuomo recommends for her husband, CNN's Chris Cuomo? Up next, we talk with medical doctor Ron Rosedale about why he believes that eating and sleeping in a way that reduces high levels of the hormone leptin might reduce the chance of severe symptoms of COVID-19, such as cytokine storms. One thing to keep in mind, this is an interview to help you ask questions about the science behind your health choices. This is not an interview to take the place of medical advice. Talk with a doctor you trust if you have questions about your health, and especially if you're taking medications. We'll include an extended version of this interview and a full transcript on the How on Earth Radio website. Now here's Dr. Ron Rosedale. One of the major problems that ends up really killing people and then really, really presenting with the respiratory difficulty is a massive inflammation. You know, people have heard of inflammation, right? They get swelling due to infection or other things, any injury. Uh, inflammation is there to save your life. That massive inflammation that you're mentioning, people are starting to hear more about that, Ron Rosedale, through the term cytokine storm. Right. That's when people need ventilation, when they can't you know, take in enough oxygen themselves and they need to be hospitalized on ventilators. Here's what I think ties it all together that I have not read about anywhere. Uh, if I can mention it, maybe people can start researching it. We know that diabetics are very much at risk. People with hypertension are very much at risk. Obesity, obese people are far more at risk. And then there's the, the cytokine storm that you mentioned. Well, there's a hormone called leptin. And leptin itself is a cytokine. I'm sorry, that didn't quite come through on the WhatsApp application. You said leptin itself is a cytokine. What is a cytokine? A cytokine is a hormone, essentially, that acts very locally. They're very powerful. Most of the cytokines are inflammatory. We hear of hormones such as thyroid and insulin and estrogen and things like that. The body has hundreds, maybe even thousands of other lesser-known hormones that don't necessarily circulate 100% in the bloodstream, but work more locally. And cytokines are sort of like that, although leptin does circulate in general. And although it is a cytokine itself, so we know that if you have high levels of leptin, it also causes inflammation. But its major problem is that it elicits the manufacture and the release of other cytokines, one being IL-6. And we know that the major cytokine storm that is occurring with COVID is mediated by IL-6. IL-6, that is interleukin-6. That's an inflammatory hormone that the body makes. Yes. 
and it's very, very inflammatory. One of the major treatments for people with this cytokine storm is to give IL-6 inhibitors, which are given to, for instance, people with bad autoimmune arthritis, for instance, rheumatoid arthritis, which have you know, excess inflammation, so they give IL-6 inhibitors. So the drug already exists and is being used to treat the cytokine storm because they know that IL-6 plays a huge role in it. And I happen to know the strong connection between leptin and IL-6. When people have too much leptin, they're hyperleptinemic, they're leptin-resistant. It is the major cause of obesity. It's one of the major causes of diabetes, one of the major causes of hypertension. So all of the predisposing factors that we know exist that put somebody at risk of an adverse outcome with COVID-19 are tied together by excess leptin. It mediates hypertension and autonomic system dysfunction. So a lot of these people, as you mentioned, have a difficult time breathing, not just because air doesn't get in, but there's a kind of a central way that people's almost, I wouldn't say desire because they want to breathe, but they can't. And not just because of obstruction, but because there's an impairment in their ability to take a breath. And that's elicited in the brain and the hypothalamus. Once again, leptin largely controls the hypothalamus and autonomic dysfunction and the sympathetic nervous system, vasoconstriction, hypertension, all these things, everything that puts a person at risk for serious disease with COVID has at least partially, if not mostly, to do with leptin. And so you want to bring down leptin, and it's relatively easy. You can bring down leptin, not totally down to where it should be, because some of that is mediated by how fat a person is. But what's not appreciated is that there's a surge in leptin, a spike in leptin, depending on what a person eats. So if a person eats a high-carbohydrate meal, for instance, it causes a leptin that day to perhaps double from what it would be if a person hadn't eaten. And so we know that if a person fasts, for instance, or if a person follows a low-carbohydrate, moderate-protein, high-fat diet that I've been recommending for 25 years, that leptin levels will really fall. It can probably go to maybe half of what it was prior to having eaten a you know a poor high-carbohydrate meal. When you lower leptin, I think you can greatly reduce the incidence of inflammation, excess inflammation, cytokine storm, hypertension, all the, the factors that make surviving this virus far more of a challenge. But this is not recognized. And so people go into hospitals and they get glucose. And everything that occurs, everything that they eat inside the hospital, all the IVs that they take you know, will raise leptin and make surviving this virus uh, far more of a challenge. And so they take medications to reduce inflammation. They need to eat also to reduce inflammation and to reduce leptin and reduce the IL-6 that's causing the inflammation in the first place. Well, Ron Rosedale, what if somebody has suddenly found out that they have symptoms like coronavirus-19? Would that be more stressful to the body to shift to this than just sticking the normal course? Well, there is a transitional period, and that's a great question. In other words, whenever the body kind of shifts gears, then there is somewhat of a stress put on it, but probably not near as much of a stress as... For instance, a high-carbohydrate meal would cause in raising leptin and raising insulin, and it raises it within hours. And when it raises insulin and raises leptin, we know that it almost immediately increases so-called sympathetic nervous system activity, basically the fight-or-flight stress. It's not a mental stress, but it's a physical stress, and that raises blood sugar. And then the raising of blood sugar raises insulin and raises leptin, which increases sympathetic nervous system activity, which also then decreases glucose, and you're into a vicious cycle. Oh, Ron Rosedale. 
with as much as you're mentioning about things like stress adding to the situation, we should try to think of a joke to tell right now. But I'm a little short on jokes at the moment. Many Americans are on many different kinds of medications for things like high blood pressure, for high cholesterol, for diabetes, such as insulin or insulin-lowering medications. When somebody starts to eat and sleep differently, then their need for those medications can start to change so that they can suddenly become over-medicated very quickly. If somebody is not used to eating this kind of diet, would it be best if they work with a medical doctor to help them adjust their medicines? I'm really glad you brought that up because medicines do have to be adjusted because this is not something that takes days or weeks but can occur almost immediately. It generally does certainly lower fasting blood sugar. So if they're on diabetic medications, that has to be lowered. Many diabetics measure their own blood sugar, and so that's easy. When your blood sugars start falling, you take less medication. Many doctors don't understand the power of diet in reducing insulin and leptin and therefore blood sugar, but great if it can be done under uh, a knowledgeable doctor's direction. Blood pressure, probably at least 75-80% of the time, will come down fairly rapidly when one drops insulin and leptin. And this is something that is misunderstood by most doctors and even people who know about leptin. Most leptin, not all, most leptin is produced by fat itself. And so it's thought that the more fat you have, the higher your leptin. And the only way you bring down leptin is by losing weight. And of course, that is a many months long process. That's not true. If you are fat, you will have a higher baseline level. But that baseline level can dramatically rise depending on what a person eats for breakfast or lunch or dinner. And that can be controlled almost immediately. Change what you have for breakfast, lunch, or dinner, and you can cut your leptin levels almost in half in one day. Then you increase leptin sensitivity, you reduce leptin resistance, and when you reduce leptin resistance, you're allowed to burn fat. Over a longer period of time, you start burning your fat, and then over the long haul, you can bring it down even further as you lose your excess fat, especially your visceral fat, belly fat. And the belly fat, we know, that produces a lot of these inflammatory chemicals, such as IL-6, that causes over-inflammation and predisposes to diseases such as diabetes and autoimmune diseases and the cytokine storm. I'm Shelley Schlender. We've been speaking with medical doctor Ron Rosedale about diet, lifestyle, and COVID-19. We have an extended version of this interview and a full transcript of it on the How on Earth website. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Shelley Schlender. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Snarky Puppy. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender.